For a long time, migrants have been fleeing their home countries to build a new life in the United States. But the debate still persists. Do people have a right to immigrate to, immigrate to America? And does immigration violate the rights of Americans? Or does curtailing immigration violate the rights of Americans? And overall, what is the proper role of government in immigration policy, if any? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Agustina Vergara Cid. I'm a junior fellow at ARI. And with me is Onkar Gatte, senior fellow at ARI. Welcome, Onkar. Hi, Agustina. So um, what we're going to do today is we're going to be exploring the answers to many questions about immigration from uh, more of a philosophical perspective. I think it's a perspective that is much needed in the immigration debate nowadays, and it, it always has been. And I don't think Ankara, a lot of people can think in a philosophical and principle way about immigration, which is obviously a very polarizing subject. So um, we can jump right in and uh, I would like to start talking about rights generally. And I think one of the main issues here is that many immigration advocates claim that immigration is a human right, as they, as they call it. So do immigrants actually have a right to immigrate to America? And I'd like to go further because obviously I think everyone agrees that we all have a right to leave our home countries and you know, go elsewhere, just leave our, 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 our countries where we currently reside. But do we have a right to be received by another country? And if not, how is that right to leave have any, how does it have any importance if we cannot have the right to enter some, some other country? Yeah, so th there's a lot of things there. So let's unpack some of it. So putting it in terms of human rights, yeah, I would not use that language because I think that language is deliberately, when you look at its origins, it was human rights versus property rights. And this was coming out of the, in the whole 19th century, one of the ways of thinking about the, after the founding of America, the people attacking the idea of rights and attacking the fundamental philosophical idea in the Declaration of Independence which was about all men are created equal and they have equal rights was to try to drive a wedge between property rights and other rights and those were labeled well these are human rights freedom of speech freedom of movement and so but owning the property that you earn no that's not and if you think of the whole rise of socialism it's warring against property and property rights so, so that language of putting in terms of human rights was deliberate and I think incorrect and fundamentally incorrect. So I think of it as individual rights. And if we think of the declaration, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or if we think of the whole American revolution, it's a right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. And those are the individual's fundamental philosophical rights. So, so putting it then in terms of individual rights, you can say that people agree that uh, someone has the right to emigrate, but I don't even think that is thought about properly. The And it's certainly denied in all kinds of countries of people trying to get out of Cuba, North Korea, when it, you had the whole Soviet Union, they put up a wall to prevent people from escaping. So in actual fact, it was denied. But even in the better, freer countries, to understand this 
you have to get the American conception to have a full philosophical understanding of it, which is government is not in any sense a ruler of the people. Its power is the part of the way the founding fathers put it. It's derived from the consent of the government. You're delegating certain powers that you possess in a sense as an individual and you're delegating to the government. Government then is an institution you're setting up to advance the protection of your rights. You're delegating basically your right to self-defense, to secure and enforce. And enforce your rights means by force of law, which in the end means government using physical force to find someone, imprison someone. So, and that's what you're, you're delegating a certain power to the government. You can only delegate the, the protection of your rights when you actually have a right to something and you're saying, I'm delegating the protection of this to the government. You don't have a right to tell somebody else if they, if either they think, look, this country's headed in a bad direction. The government that we set up is becoming more tyrannical and so on. I wanna leave. Or even if it's just things are going pretty well here, but now there's a revolution in America and that's an even better, I'd rather be not in Britain, but in America, so I wanna leave. Nobody has a right to say, oh no, I don't want you to leave. I wanna prevent you um, and so I'm gonna stop you. And so they don't have the power to delegate that to government and saying, okay, I won't come by as your neighbor and stop you, but the government's gonna stop you from leaving. They don't have that power to delegate to government. And that's the reason to think of it, you have, Freedom means freedom of movement, freedom of trade, including if you find some better place to go in the country, you're free to move about. And if you decide, oh, there's a better country to go to, you have that freedom too. And nobody has a power to stop you. And so the government can stop you. And I don't think very many people, when they think about a right to emigrate, think of it in those terms. And it's really important to think that that's, government's power just comes from the people and it means the people as individuals have to be have the right that they're then delegating and if they don't have it they can't delegate it right so if a government doesn't have the right to stop you from leaving but what to what extent are they and we're going to discuss about particular objections to immigration uh, in in a minute but what good is the right to leave if if I don't have a right to be received by others? Yeah. Like so, what, so the implementation really, gets tricky. Well, it's partly because it's thought of, I think, not in an individualized way, but a collectivized way. So one of the ways you put it, and again, it, I think you're putting it like this because this is how many people will put it, just like human rights, that's the language they use. Yeah. So a right to re be received by another country that's like the country as a collective or its government. Oh, it's going to receive you. And do you have a right to tell that government how it's going to behave and so on? No, if it's thought about in that kind of way, a government is a, is the representative of the citizens. If you're a citizen, if you're not a citizen of the country, the government is not your agent. You haven't delegated power to it. You don't have a say in a sense of how it functions. And so you don't have to say, oh, you have to receive me and so on. It's not your government, but it is the government. And if we're talking about a, a free government or an even in a, or 
government in a freer nation like America. And if we're going back to the American Declaration of Independence and its whole conception of government, one has to ask, well, could the citizens delegate some kind of power to the government to stop people from coming in the country? And that I think the answer is no. So in that sense, you can think of a foreigner, well, he has a right to immigrate, but, but he has a right to leave his country and no American citizen has a right to prevent someone. If I, if, if I wanna trade with someone, there's someone in Bolivia and it, it's, I strike up a I visit Bolivia, strike up a conversation with someone, we find out, oh yeah, we have really similar interests. We're interested in setting up a similar kind of company and if it's, well, come to America, it will be easier to do this. And so I want to work with you. I don't, uh, another American citizen doesn't have a right to prevent that. And so he can't delegate that to, oh, I'm not going to stop you, but your gov my government's going to stop you. He doesn't have the right to do that to other American citizens. And that's the sense in which I think the primary terms of thinking of it, in, when we're thinking of it, of someone coming into a country, it's from the perspective of the citizens of that country, if it's a free country, then they have the right to deal with individuals whom they want to deal with. And that includes citizens and non-citizens. Um, and it includes people around the world, but it's in an individualized context, not well, the government's receiving someone. It's there's people in the country who want to deal with foreigners and other citizens don't have the right to prevent that and they can't delegate it to government, therefore. And the discussion of, of government, what government can do and cannot do, I think it's, it's very relevant, obviously, to this discussion, partly because, of course, like you said, like government has the monopoly on the use of force that is delegated by, by, the, by the people. So if, and with that force, what the government has to do is protect individual rights of, Ameri of individuals. In this case, we're talking about uh, Americans. That's the proper role of government. But many will argue that uh, immigration, having people come here, violates their rights because of many reasons, including that immigration uh, lowers the standard of living for Americans. Uh, and there's other reasons, like, for instance, immigrants allegedly take the jobs away from Americans, which actually has factually been proven uh, to be false. But even if this was true, let's say that, you know, uh, immigrants, quote, take the jobs away from Americans. What, is this a valid objection? Is, are immigrants actually violating the rights of Americans by coming here? No, none of those objections are valid when one thinks properly about what individual rights are. And one way to see that is to notice that you can make many of these arguments against citizens of the country. So against your fellow Americans. Um, people have kids. Those kids are gonna grow up. Aren't they gonna take other Americans' jobs? Do you have a right to do that? So, and if when you start to put it in that context, are, are you saying that, oh, no, American can say, no, you to his neighbors and so, no, you can't have kids because they might grow up and take my jobs or they might decrease my standard of living. So you don't have any such power over other Americans. And then the idea that, oh, no, OK, you don't have it over other Americans, but you have it over other people in other countries. You don't. And you don't if just as 
it's a, a choice of a of a couple of two parents that yeah we want to have kids so if your neighbor's deciding look i want to marry a foreigner and they come over or i want to start a business with a foreigner or i want to employ a foreigner it doesn't matter if your neighbor disapproves anymore if they disapprove of an american i don't like the business you're starting it might affect my standard of living it's too much competition and i don't want to deal with competition so you don't have that power over citizens and you don't have that power over non-citizens and it's only again in a collectivized context that people start to think well but it's our country and don't we have a say about our country but it's not your country in the sense that you own it and you get to say have a say about everything that happens in the country because then again you can make the same argument well look it's our country and so don't i get a say about how many people are going to be here and so don't i get to say you're having six kids that's too many kids and the, and no you don't have that kind of say you don't have a right and so you can't delegate that to government to enforce and it it the, when one thinks about it like that um it it the issue of citizen non-citizen you start to see that's not an essential and if i thought this argument is effective it's equally effective against my fellow citizens what do you think it is i find very curious that people um will say okay they, they make that distinction citizen versus non-citizen what do you think it is that they think that they they make this distinction like they think okay we can limit what these individuals do that are within this territory that is mine allegedly like they think of it as if it was like a country was their own i think private property because we can argue if it's your private something is your private property you can have as many people or, or no one if you want in your private property but why is it that there's this sense of this is ours because we were arbitrarily born in this place It is in the present context of, we have a mixed economy. So we're, we're in part talking about the ideals of America and the ideals that's contained in the Declaration of Independence. That's where the idea of rights comes from and that government is founded on this idea and that its purpose, and it really its only purpose, is the protection of its citizens' rights. We're talking about that as the context here, but it's a context that not many people actually accept anymore. In particular, we live in a mixed economy now that is, it, uh, the one way to think of the mixture, it's a mixture of laws that actually protect individual rights. And you can think of many of the criminal laws, for instance, protect individuals against rape, murder, theft. These are all laws that are proper and they're, aimed at the protection and securing of individual rights. But we have to say it's a mixture. It's a mixture of those kinds of laws and laws that exploit other people, that it, it no longer is a protection of individual rights, but they're actually aimed in the end at violating rights. And just to think of the growth of the American government in the last 50 plus years, and it's relevant to thinking about the immigration and immigration argument, because it will often be brought up well, we live in a welfare state now. And what a welfare state is, it's a systematic violation of people's property rights. It takes property from some people and gives it away to other people. They call it redistribution. But it's taking from some and giving to others. It's taking from people who've earned the property and giving it to people who didn't earn the property. 
And whatever the rhetoric around Medicare and Social Security, to take two of the biggest government programs, that's what they do. They're not investment schemes. Your money's not being put away into some savings bank or are invested in the American economy. So it's spent. And when you retire or when you need Medicare, it's the hope is there'll be other people around who are producing things that the government will be able to take that, some of their property and give it to you, just as when you were younger, they took some of your property and gave it to other people. That's what the scheme is. And so that is far from protecting individual rights, it's violating them. And when you live in a mixed economy, you start to see other people as threats. They might pass some kind of laws that are going to further violate my rights. And whether it's um, we're going to pass, we're going to increase the taxes for Social Security. And now instead of 14% of your income, it's going to be 15%. Or we're going to increase the distribution of Medicare to the elderly. So then the elderly become a threat to you. You just, you absorb this. And I think Americans have, they're less benevolent than they were 50, 60, 70 years ago. And benevolence is you look at other people and think, yeah, they could be productive people. They can be just like us. And it doesn't matter what their passport is or what country they were born in. They can be free, upright, responsible individuals just like me. And that's an enormous gain if I'm around other people who are productive, who I can trade with, who I can learn from, who I can live with, who I can love. And that's in a freer society, that's your attitude towards other people. And the, the system reinforces that attitude. And in a less free country, that becomes less and less people's attitudes. So that, uh, I mean, America, you, one used to think of, it's the country of immigration, and it's open to immigration, and they want the people from around the world. And if you think of the Statue of Liberty, the, like it's a beacon that's welcoming people. And that's, I think, what America more was more like. It wasn't completely like that. And there were certainly anti-immigration laws in its history, but more like that. And the more that the less there's freedom and the more you have a mixed economy, the more you start to see everybody as threats. And I think immigrant is one and it's an easy one to sort of scapegoat. And I think that's part of what's been happening. Yes. Um, and even all these claims that are made about, you know, immigrants, immigration lowers the standard of living um, and or it, like a very common claim is uh, claim is immigrants are a disproportionate amount of the people who commit who commit crimes or even this this claim about, you know, uh, immigrants taking away the jobs from America. That is actually the research has proven that these things are not true, but yet people keep, you know, insisting on them. For instance, with the claim about jobs, the research has clearly shown that e if there is a displacement effect, it is very small because actually immigrants expand the employment opportunities wherever they go because they're normally drawn to areas that are, uh, that are growing, regions that are developing, and they increase the supply and demand size of the economy in those areas and therefore, in general, boost employment and the economy. And this is actually proven in studies, but People still insist on the thing, on this, uh, on this type of claims, and they think they have a right to a job. And if, if and an immigrant that comes here does not, like 
again, that is not individual right. And something that I have been thinking about lately is, is something that was uh, said to me very recently is being denied of a value that will be the, the value of a job is not a violation of your rights. Uh, if you have a value taken away from you, that could be a violation of your rights, but not being denied of a job is not a violation of rights. And I think Ayn Rand was pretty clear about that. And it's all those arguments, part of the evidence that something deeper is going on is and, and making people that they're against immigration and think of it as it's a real threat they don't think this or many of them at least don't think this about citizens so th this is the point it's really relevant to think about children and chil children of uh, how they put it, of americans or of citizens you don't have this view of children that someone's having another kid oh there's someone they're going to be a further burden there goes my standard of living they're going to steal my jobs indeed you have the if anything you should have the opposite attitude that an expanding population so forget about immigration just an expanding population will bring about more economic prosperity other things equal more people is better because you have more of a division of labor people can specialize mentally specialize and you see um real explosion in productivity and it rightly that there's worries in some of the western countries that the it's a shrinking population so take japan for instance and there it's relevant there too because they're they it's hard to to uh immigrate in japan for various reasons including their sort of anti anybody who's not japanese when you talk to people who live there even if they were able to immigrate into japan it's not the most welcoming place and they're worried that look as the population total declines it that will be create economic problems it's partly for the welfare state but partly just for the whole division of labor it's the fewer the people the less productive the whole everybody is and so and again people can grasp that it's yeah no i don't know i don't think kid, i'm not against kids so if you're not against kids and new people, and so why is it if, oh, but they, they were born in a different country. Now I'm really against them and let's keep them out. And, so, and it, if you're thinking about the logic of it, it, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And that's part of why it, like, you get, it's a scapegoat for something because otherwise, like I could understand, I think it would be completely wrong, but understand, yeah, I'm against people everywhere. I don't want new people. I don't want kids. I don't think people should be having kids. I view it as a threat and there go our jobs. So if someone had that position, there's a logic to it. It's completely wrong, but there's not even a logic to the immigration one when it's, oh, they're going to steal our jobs or something. And we'll come back to the issue of scapegoat in a minute, but before moving on from this issue of, of, of rights and the role of government, so what kind of government involvement is appropriate in, in immigration, if any? And part of the reason I'm asking is because leaving aside the issue of people thinking that they have a right to a job and all these things that we just described, people will say uh, that the job of the government is to thoroughly screen the people that come here in case they're criminals or they have an infectious disease. We've seen this with, with COVID. Um, or they are planning on leaving off of welfare. 
uh, or we can actually leave that last argument there, but let's say that they should be screened in case they're criminals and they should be uh, screened in case they have some disease. Is that the role of government? Is that something the government should do in immigration? There is a role of government there, I think, but not put in those terms that it should they, they just should screen everybody. The they have to have reason to do it. So there can be and there have been contexts in which that kind of screening would be proper. That I mean, a country at war that you're screening and particularly screening from people coming from places where you have reason to think they're they're hostile they have spies and so and you're worried about that 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 for sure is a proper function of government but it, it's not the kind of mindless um every, we screen everybody even if we have reason to think they're not a threat and so on if you think like the screening at airports today and what part of that was implemented after 9 11 of, of how onerous the screening is. And there it was deliberately, well, we can't profile, which means we can't take into account, oh, no, but we have evidence that Iran has all kinds of agents and is trying to undermine America. And so, and so if, if the, I mean, depending on what degree of that evidence is, and so that it's for people coming from Iran or Iranians, where we have some reason to think, well, they might have a connection to government and so on and be foreign agents in effect, that's profiling and you weren't allowed to do that. So it was everybody will have the same amount of screening, even if it's obvious that the, no, this person's not gonna hijack a plane and they're in a wheelchair and so on. And you see the wheelchair is going through the screens and that's the kind of mindlessness. And it, the government doesn't have that kind of power. It's not because it, nobody could delegate that kind of power, but yes, if for if for so there's foreign policy context in which it would be appropriate i think and there's infectious disease um context in which it would be appropriate if there's really evidence that an, there's an infectious disease outbreak in some part of the world and then you're screening people coming from that part of the world are they carriers and so on again there has to be evidence it has to be this has to all be done by law not by just the kind of arbitrary discretion of government officials. And so, but yes, there could be context in which that is appropriate. And but that's very even, different than just sort of blanket screening. And even in that case of an infectious disease, I mean, I don't see generally why a screening process would have to be different for foreigners and for uh, US nationals. I mean, let's say if there's an outbreak in China and I I were an American citizen, which I'm not. And I came back to, I were in China and I came back to America. I would have the same risk of carrying that disease as a Chinese citizen that is visiting America or trying to settle in America. I don't see why there should be a difference, right? Yeah, I think fundamentally there's not a difference in the sense that if, if you think there's an infectious disease outbreak somewhere, then it's, as I think I put it, it's people coming from that area that it you might have some screening for and that would be citizens and non-citizens what happens um if the person tests positive or there reason to think they are a carrier of this infectious disease? that might vary from between mm -hmm. citizen and non-citizen but the fundamental that if you're screening this yeah there's no no reason to think well um, non-citizens can carry this disease but citizens can't 
and the, the more generally, the issue of citizenship is important. So the one has one should distinguish between immigration and citizenship. My view is not, and I don't think it would be a proper view that it's um, that an immigrant can just in a month or something become a citizen of the country. Citizenship means you're part of the people who have established this government, and that has a meaning. Um, and that that there's a process to become a citizen or a process of naturalization as it as it will often be put in. I think it's put in the constitution. Mm -hmm. That that is proper, I think. Okay. And um another common objection to to immigration and in fact I've been hearing this a lot because People, a lot of uh, people, mostly conservatives, click, conservatives claim that the Biden administration is not doing a good job at the border, and we've seen that. Whereas they claim that Trump, because he enforced all these immigration laws uh, more uh, more strictly, uh, was was actually uh, complying with what should be done. So basically, they're saying that a failure to enforce all of our immigration law as uh, a loss as allegedly Biden is doing will destroy the rule of law. And it's only a slippery slope uh, from there. What do you think of, of this objection? There's various strands in this objection that I think one has to distinguish. I So one, if you have laws on the books, it is true that it is the executive branch's responsibility to enforce the law. And the executive branch should not be able to cherry pick. It should not be able to say, oh, we're, we're enforcing these ones because we agree with these or we like these laws. We're not gonna enforce the other ones because we don't agree with them. And it, so we, we prefer that the, it's in effect, it's like the laws not on the books. So if you have laws on the books, it is the executive branch's responsibility and obligation to uphold and enforce the law. It's not clear to me that you could say for the Trump administration that that's what it was doing versus cherry picking parts of the immigration law and saying, okay, this is what we're really gonna focus on and not other parts and the Biden administration doing something different in regard to that. But it's not clear to me we've had any administration in the recent history that's really saying we're going to enforce all the laws on the books. That's so that's important because you're starting to get when the when it you are allowing the executive branch to pick and choose, you're deviating from what a what rule of law actually means. The part of the division of powers is Congress passes the laws, the legislature passes the laws. If you want to change the laws, that's what you have to do. You have to get to Congress and write different laws. The executive branch, it doesn't have that power. It enforces that. And part of, if you're thinking of it just from the perspective of citizens, part of it, citizens should really pay attention to what the laws are. And part of that is to see them actually enforced. And when you see people who want to work at the border, who are turned away, and you see American companies who want to employ these people, and they're prevented from doing that. I mean, the whole tech sector would have employed many more people from around the world if they were free to do so. When you see these things 
actually enforced. That's part of what how it, you can grasp that there's something wrong with our laws. There's something perverse, unjust about this. And so the, it, it, that's and that's part of then how law will change. So it's important they be enforced. Um, when it's a when it's a whole bunch of laws all of which together can't be enforced. That's another whole problem. And the executive branch should say that openly. Like we've got contradictory laws. And if we're going to enforce, try to enforce this one, then it seems like we're violating that one. That's a huge problem. This is what we're going to do. But it's a message to the legislative branches. Like they don't understand what the laws are. They don't know what it would look like to enforce these things. Um, in regard to immigration, it I do think there is such a thing as illegal immigration. And it's important to label it like that, that given our laws, there's people who have come from other countries into the country. They haven't followed what the legal process is to get admittance into the, into the United States. And in that sense, in, but in that important sense, they're illegal. But it's a problem with our laws, not a problem with these people. If, I mean, and again, if you think of it in an individual context, someone born, someone born in Cuba, um, in, he's born in a nightmare dictatorial country, and he wants to come, or he or she wants to come to America. And America says, no, we're not gonna. And that person, well, I wanna come and work. And my life is a hell in this country. If you think from a moral perspective, is that person's decision moral that he says, well, I'm going to come illegally then. If you won't let me in legally and you're trying to prevent me from building a life and from working and trading with other Americans, I'm going to come in illegally. I view that as a moral decision on that person's part, that it is what he's trying to do is make a better life. He wants to be peaceful. He tries to get in through what the actual processes are and is either like endless delays, like he just gets no answer, or the answer is no. That person has one life to live. And that if they're actually coming and trying to build the life here, that's a virtue, not a vice. And so th that we label them and it's they came in illegally. One, I think that any decent American should think that's a problem with our laws, not with this person who's come in peacefully and he wants to be productive. It's a problem that we treat him like a criminal, not the problem is, oh, well, he violated the law. So that, and again, if you think in terms of citizens, we violate laws that we think are wrong and we don't label the people as well you're illegal because what we're grasping is there's something wrong about the law so an uh, example i always get and i'll give you one that iran gives and it's one ayn rand commented on so the one i always give is we speed um and so you know, i i live in the dc area it's unbelievable the beltway's speed limit is 55 miles per hour this is a divided multi-lane highway. It's 55 miles per hour. With modern cars, modern drivers, that is, you can drive at 70, 75, and it's safe. And everybody does it. And nobody thinks, 
um, oh, well, we're all illegal drivers. I guess we should, we should put us all in prison or maybe send us out of the country or something. No, because it's the law here. Like the speed limit doesn't make any sense that it's 55. Uh, and when you go to California, you go drive on like surface streets and the, the speed limit is 55. And here we've got a multi-lane highway. And so it's the, the mere fact that someone is disregarding the law. We don't, when it's a citizen, we don't think, oh, that makes you a monster that you're doing that. And the same is true of non-citizens. Another example of that is prohibition. When that was passed and passed as a constitutional amendment that you can't drink, people didn't view the people who drink as, oh my God, you guys are legal drinkers. You should be put in jail. And Ayn Rand commented in one of the things she liked about America is when this, when this unjust law was passed, Americans started drinking on principle. So the people who didn't want to drink, it's like, really, you're, the government's going to tell me whether I can drink or not? I'm going to drink. And, so, and that is the a better response to unjust laws. And I think that for the actual rule of law to be present too, good laws are required, not just you know, uh, uh, strict adherence to government enforcement of really bad laws that actually violate individual rights. Uh, but a couple of things I have to say about uh, some of the things that, that you were discussing. Uh, first of all, I think that I, I agree with your characterization of immigrant, of illegal immigrants, as uh, I'm still used to using the quotes because I used to not uh, really use that language. But the fact that they go through what they go through to cross the border. And I invite people to research a little bit and look into the conditions that the people that are fleeing their countries have to are escaping from Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, Mex Mexico even. They really, they go through hell. And that is an understatement. It's extremely, extremely harsh, the conditions they have to live in and the things that they have to do to get here crossing the border, jumping on trains to that, that will, will come straight to, to America, all kinds of things that I think the fact that they take their lives seriously enough to go ahead and do that because they want a better life from this, for, for themselves and they want a better life for the family, I think that is admirable. And I think uh, I judge them personally as, as, I think that is a moral act to do what they are doing. And I think people kind of like miss that context a little bit and they don't know what life is like because it would be easier actually for a lot of people to just, you know, uh, just, you know, keep working, like work for the cartels when they, they, they threaten them or just submit to the conditions that they live in. But no, they want to live a moral life. They want to work. They want to earn their living. And so the place to do it is they cannot do it where they currently live and they cannot do it basically anywhere else in, in any of the surrounding countries that they are. I'm talking about particularly immigrants from, from Latin America. And so they come here to do that and they don't come here to uh, abuse the system or anything. And leaving one's country is not something, I have yet to meet one immigrant that happily left his or her own country. I myself, I, I am an immigrant from Argentina and I came here not, I mean, I wanted to, obviously, and I'm very happy to be here, but it would have been so much better if my country was a good enough country that they didn't have to leave everything behind, leave my family, leave my friends, leave everything I owned.
to come here with nothing and build my life from scratch. I would have loved to not have to do that. But because I take my life seriously and I want to work, I want to progress in ways that my own country does not allow me to do, I decided to come here. And I think that for all immigrants that do that, I think that it's an admirable thing to do. Um, but also yes, when it comes definitely. to- yes. It's worth saying, I think, a little bit more on this illegal. So I can understand why you might be reluctant to use the term, and other people are, because it's meant as a smear. It's yeah. meant that, well, you're an illegal immigrant that says something bad about you. And not always, but often in regard to smears, one of the proper responses is to wear it proudly. And to say, yes, I violated the law because your laws are stupid. They're trying to keep and they're unjust. They're trying to keep people out who want to work. And part of that is a violation of other individual Americans' rights. That if a, if a Google or a Microsoft wants to hire someone or a farm in Southern California wants to hire someone from Mexico, who are these busybodies in the rest of America to say, no, you can't do that. So we somehow think we have the power to prevent you from doing that. And so it's just as, for instance, one way in thinking of it at a philosophical level in regard to the concept of selfishness, this is part of what Ayn Rand did. It's a smear term. And she reclaimed it and said, no, it, 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 I can turn that around and there's something wrong with you if you think the part of what selfishness, a valid concept of it means, is a pursuit of your own happiness. It goes back to the Declaration of Independence. And if you think it's a insult to say, of say someone who's selfish, the proper rational conception of that means he's actually pursuing their happiness. There's something wrong with you for giving that kind of insult. And that's part of the issue here in regard to um, it being illegal. But there's another aspect that is important, and this relates to prohibition and other things as well. If one engaged in illegal activity that one thought this actually does jeopardize other people's rights, that's a very different context. But part of what it means to say it's an invalid law is in breaking the law in a certain kind of way. So coming to the country to work you're not violating anybody's rights. And so the part of it putting it illegal is that suggestion you're somehow violating other people. No, to come to the country, you're not doing that. And I remember I was in a uh, talk that became a heated debate about immigration. And part of what they said about illegal immigrants is, um, well, they prevent legal immigration. And I asked them how? Do they do that? And I, I said, well, I'm an immigrant. I came in legally. And at the same time, a whole bunch of people likely came in illegally. How did they make it harder for me to come in? How did they make the process longer? How did, they didn't do, have any effect on me. The process already was stupid to be able to emigrate from Canada and immigrate uh, into the US. It was very cumbersome. It was expensive. And yeah, I mean, I had the money to pay for lawyers and do this, but for people who don't. So just putting all those hoops was wrong. But the idea that the people who came in illegally and who didn't go through all these hoops, that they somehow damaged other people, that's not true. And that's part of what, to label it illegal is to suggest 
they've somehow done something harmful to other people. They have not. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. It's used as a smear by people that absolutely hate immigrants. As They put it in the same level as when they call immigrants invaders. Uh, and uh, that it has a very, very bad connotation. And that's why I think immigration advocates do not, do not like to use it. And they use other terms, for instance, uh, undocumented immigrants or undocumented workers, etc. But I think you're absolutely right that it's a term that has to be reclaimed. And uh, it signals that the laws that we have that we have are unjust, and they need to be they need to be changed. Um, and when it comes to, I, I find it interesting that argument that someone told you that uh, illegal immigrants make it harder for legal immigrants to come here. That, like you said, is absolutely not true. And coming here legally, like you said, it's so hard it's extremely difficult i myself i'm still going through a process i too came here legally uh but there is not as and this is not the topic per se of the discussion today but there is no easy or simple or straightforward way to immigrate to america it's extremely hard and there's also like this misconception that america is uh so open and that everyone it is not true it is really hard to come here legally and people do not have people that really want to come here and do not meet some of the completely ridiculous criteria that they need to meet to in order to, to immigrate here legally, they have to find another way. And there is, a, a, you know, people will say like, well, they have to go wait in line, do it the proper way, but there is no line. And that's a, the whole different discussion. But yeah, I think that um, yeah. coming back to the topic of, uh, I think people are right to, are not immoral for coming here legally. And in fact, I, like I said, and, and you were saying, I think it shows that they take their life seriously. Um, and and then related, other, yes, go ahead. Well, there's one other important thing just in terms of here about the law and it being hard or illegal to come. Part of what that does is it skews the nature of immigration into America. So people wonder, why is it that we're getting people who are desperate, who are in effect fleeing really bad countries that, and the, that the political and economic, but it's usually both situations are really bad, like Central America, a lot of countries in Central America. And it's if you make it so hard to uh, immigrate into the country, you're going to skew it to the desperate people. And the person from Europe or from Canada, if, if there weren't real reasons that I wanted to come to the US and for a particular work, it was to come to the Ayn Rand Institute. It's work I couldn't do in Canada, but I have a lot more opportunities in Canada than someone in Guatemala. And it would be like, if, if it's so expensive and so much of a hassle, it will be, no, I don't, I'm not gonna go through all of this. I'm gonna stay in Canada. And it's the same for Europe. It's the same for parts of Asia. And so, and so that you're seeing the immigration skew towards the most desperate. Well, that's part of the consequence of making it so hard or indeed illegal. Because then you have to think, am I willing to break the law to come here uh, and to get into the US? And it's again, coming from Canada, it's no, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not going to break the law to come. But if I were stranded and, and born in Guatemala, the decision will be different. It would be, yeah, I'm going to even risk breaking the law. And if I find out I may never be able to get into the country again, I'll be banished for life and so on. But it's it's worth taking that risk. And and it it, it so it distorts what if we had freer immigration, we'd have immigration from around the world into the U.S. And that's a consequence of that the laws are bad. Uh, immigration laws are really bad right now in the U.S. Another objection, Onkar, leaving aside this, uh, these other objections, like they take away our jobs and welfare and all that stuff. But another objection that people have for immigration is that they say that American culture and American values are disappearing because we have so many immigrants, because immigrants are usually, like you were saying, from less civilized countries, desperate people, and they, because of their culture, they are destroying America's values and political institutions and culture in general. What do you think of this? It's not true. And even if it were true, it wouldn't be, I think, an argument against, it wouldn't be an argument for granting government the power to enforce these kinds of issues. But it, that it's, this argument of there goes our culture, it's not true. And particularly the freer the immigration is, it wouldn't just be immigrants from one or two countries or countries close to the border who they can sneak in and some of it's harder if you live in um, Afghanistan or the Netherlands or to sneak into the US. But if it's your live along the Mexican border, you might be able to. If we had freer immigration, you'd get one immigration immigrants from around the world. You would get immigrants who are choosing America because it's the best place, not just I live in horrific conditions and I want to get to America. That already says something good about so. But it says also something good about I live in um, uh, France, but I think the America is even better. It's freer. I'll have more opportunities. It's more pro-business. That's where I want to be. You'd get that kind of immigrant as well. You would get as America had more, I think, um, in its in its past. You would have immigrants around the world coming to America because they think there's something good about America, and some that and their lives will be better. And the idea that that is that like is a problem, and like there goes our culture. That's part of what the American culture is: that we look for what is good, we look for what's valuable, and we don't care if where you were born, what your skin color is, like that's what the ideal of America means. It's part of what the, the Statue of Liberty means. Give us your poor huddled masses yearning to breathe, breathe free. What we care about is if the person's yearning to breathe free. And that's who you would attract if immigration was freer. And you'd attract people from around the world. And the more it's from around the world, it's people coming, like they don't all share a history and so on. And part of then the assimilation is um, they assimilate from around the world. Some of the immigrants do stay, I think, for too long into their kind of ethnic pockets and so on. But the better of them and, and their second and third generation, it, it's, oh, yeah, like we want we want to be Americans. And that that enriches and perpetuates the American um, American freedom. It's not a it's not a threat to it.
Yes, and in fact, there is uh, a large amount of research that shows that immigrants now are assimilating as well or even better than previous uh, groups of immigrants. So the, uh, this is referring to the fact that immigrants now are mostly from Central America and Latin America in general, whereas before they were from, from Europe, which many people see as, and literally they were called the better quality uh, immigrants. But the research so shows that they're, like I said, assimilated as, as well or better than previous immigrant, uh, uh, immigrant groups. And so the bottom line is that, that this research generally shows is that the assimilation is always tricky and it takes a long time, but it is trending in the right way. It's going very well. But related to, to this issue, yes, go ahead. To say one other, from a perspective that, uh, to say one other thing on this issue of there goes the culture and how to think about that. This is distinctively from an objectivist perspective, the seriousness with which objectivism takes ideas and philosophical ideas. So you put it that Europe is the, it was seen as the better, we want people to come from Europe and so on. What actually happened in the United States is after the American Revolution, all kinds of ideas came into the country and they didn't come from Latin America. They did not come from Africa. They did not come from Asia. They came from Europe. We imported European ideas and the European ideas of collectivism, of socialism, and of more broadly, if you understand what happened in European intellectual history in the 19th century, a deep mysticism was imported from Europe into America. And the reason America, including then many Americans, but particularly its intellectuals, turned away from the American founding is that. So if you had this kind of argument, the most plausible target is in the 19th century, you should not have allowed uh, European immigration into America. And But then that even wouldn't have solved it because part of what happened is a lot of Americans went to Europe and got educated in Europe and learned these European ideas and came back to America. So then you would have had to say, not only can the American government prevent Europeans from going um, into coming to America and even like visiting and having a visiting professorship and so on, you can't let Americans go to Europe because they'll learn these ideas. And, so on. and the more you push on this, the more it looks like, well, this is a totalitarian government that is going to tell people exactly where they can go and where they can't go and what they can study and what they can't study and so on. And it's the opposite of what the American government in its original conception is. It does not have this kind of power. So it's the responsibility of the citizenry, not of the government. And the citizens cannot delegate this power to the government. It's their responsibility as individuals to understand the right ideas, advocate the right ideas, oppose ideas that are anti-American and anti the Declaration of Independence. And unfortunately in the 19th century, Americans did not do that. But to pin this on, to pin what happened on immigrants is ridiculous. And to offer this as a kind of solution, if you really thought about what that would have meant in the 19th century, it would have meant the American government, we need 
totalitarian powers, and that's absurd. Yeah, and a couple of things about that. Like, um, I, I think it's uh, in uh, the book Objectivism in the Philosophy of Fine Rand, Dr. Peikoff has a quote. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but something like, it is, it is the citizens, the people's job to uh, perpetuate the right ideas. And he says something like, playing on that uh, famous quote that freedom requires an eternal ideological vigilance that the people have to carry out. But also this objection of, you know, of uh, not letting people in from certain countries because of the ideas. I mean, nowadays, especially, do you think that because someone with bad ideas comes here, that's how the ideas are going to infiltrate America with the internet and the way that we communicate? That I don't think is a valid objection at all. Also from that particular perspective. But another thing that has uh, been always something that anti-immigration or people that do not favor immigration in general are, are arguing for, and recently it, has, it was argued uh, by people who follow Trump and, for, and by Trump uh, himself, is that there should be ideological screening for, uh, for people at the border. And you touched on this a little bit just now, but do you think that also if, if we allowed ideological screening of immigrants, would that also be a slippery slope that could lead to ideological screening internally as well? Yeah, I don't think it's a slippery slope. I think it is, if you're saying that the government has this power, there's no reason why it wouldn't exercise that power against citizens and non-citizens. If it's the government's responsibility to make sure there's the right ideas in the country, if anything, that applies much more to citizens. They, they're they the ones who vote. And so these are the ones who we have to make sure have the right ideas, not immigrants or not citizens who can't vote and have that kind of impact on the political process and on government. So if it were really that, that that's what you thought, the government has to make sure we have the right ideas in the country. That argument, if it if it's right, applies much more to citizens than to non-citizens. And that, that's why I don't think of it as a slippery slope. If you think of the logic mm -hmm. of it, it, that's what it means. Right. And the government cannot have that power of deciding what ideas people should and should not hold. If we have... The, if you're to have a, a free society, it means, again, you have the freedom to think, to speak with your fellow citizens, for them to entertain the ideas that they do, for you to entertain your ideas, to discuss, to debate, to learn, all absent government saying, though, but these are acceptable ideas and these are not acceptable ideas. So the idea of handing to government power over ideology, I think, is um, it's perverse. And part of the problem in America today, but it's, again, something done by Americans to America, not some foreign power imposed this on America or immigrants imposed this on America, is that they have allowed the government to have a lot of control over ideology. And that's through having control over the educational system of public schools uh, at the K through 12 level and of public funding of so much of education, which includes higher, certainly higher education. I mean, just, just the whole issue about forgiving student loans and the mm -hmm. scale of it just tells you how much of higher education 
is now um, financed by government. And the, that government is so it already exerts a lot of ideological control. That's part of the problem with our whole educational system. And the idea that, oh, but now we're going to give it even more control, we'll give it over control of immigrants, so is it, that is a further step to giving the government totalitarian power. But let me just say that there's a difference between ideological screening and screening. So we brought up before the issue of if you're at war or you, there's countries that are hostile to you and screening for foreign agents, for people who are part of a um, foreign groups and doesn't always have to be a governmental group if you think of some terrorist groups. So of, and you're in part looking at a person's ideas, but you're looking at them having taken actions to enforce these ideas in a way that will violate people's rights, including the rights of Americans. So there's a, people will bring this up about Muslims. And so can we screen for that? No, I do not think you can screen for what a person's religious ideas any more than you can screen that they're Catholics or that they're Christians, both of which set of ideas are detrimental to human life in the same fundamental way for why um, Islam as a religion is. I mean, in the end, I think religion is detrimental to human life. It is not the responsibility of the American government to say citizens can or cannot be religious or of foreigners who come into the country and want to trade with Americans, rent from Americans to say, well, they can be, either they have to be religious or they can't be religious. But that's very different than saying, look, if you're a member of ISIS, um, that the government is going to stop you from coming in, views you as an opponent of the United States and so on. And it has an ideological component, but it's not the simple holding of ideas. And one parallel to this is, and people can read Ayn Rand's own sort of self-reflection about when she testified to the uh, the committee for what is the the committee for un-American activities. Um, this is the in the era of McCarthy and so on. And was it legitimate? for the government to be involved in this. And she made a distinction between it's not legitimate if what the government is doing is saying, you can't read the communist manifesto or you can't be a communist or a Marxist in terms of ideas. What it you can't be is a member of the communist party who's dedicated to the overthrow of the American government. And that's valid for American uh, government to investigate and take steps to oppose, but it's opposing the Communist Party, not communism as an ideology, and its responsibility is to somehow beat this out or something. That's the responsibility of individual citizens. If you're against communism, don't have communist professors, don't have them all over the universities and so on. Um, that's what individual citizens can do, and individual American citizens paid way too little attention to what was going on in the educational system. And again, that's not the fault of immigrants, that's the fault of Americans. And related to, to this objection is one that people on the right make saying that immigrants, if, if we let immigrants come here, immigrants will vote for the left once they become citizens and they see that as a, as a big problem. And I have my own opinion of that, 
they point to what happened, for instance, in California in the 90s, where uh, many immigrants and their descendants uh, voted for the Democratic Party and turned California blue. But also the research uh, showed that uh, what happened there is that they voted like that because it was a reaction to, to the Republicans declaring essentially a political war on them at that point with a proposition that I believe was number uh, 187 that was going to control many benefits for illegal immigrants and other things. So what do you think of these objections? Yeah, so as you, you were sketching there, I don't think there's evidence for it. The But it's again, it, it's sort of, ideological screening by proxy. We're not gonna screen for what ideas they hold, but we're gonna screen for how they vote. And if we think we can project how they'll vote, then we're gonna have immigration based on that. You, first of all, you cannot project out in the future how people will vote. Um, but it's it, more fundamentally, it is not the job of the American government to do that any more than it would be that, so again, think of, parents having kids that, oh, you can have a kid if we've got reason to think your kid's going to vote Republican. But if we have reason to think your kid's going to vote Democrat, and I, I'm sure you can concoct some kind of statistics where you could find some group, it's more likely they're going to vote Democrat or re vote Republican. And it's, oh, so we're going to have laws against that. And it's again, like nobody luckily right now, I think is contemplating Oh yeah, we'd have laws against people having kids and so on if we had reason to think, oh, it's more likely your kid's going to be a Democrat than we're going to pass laws to make it harder for you to have kids or or outlawed completely. Um, and if you put it in that context, the idea that you're going to do that in regard to immigrants, it should strike, I think, as there's something really wrong with that. And in a wider way, it's it's much too deterministic, the whole framework. Like if you come from this country, you're gonna have these ideas and therefore vote in this kind of way. And if you're born into poverty, you're gonna vote for this. And It's not true, none of that is true. And um, and, and thinking of it from the, the responsibility again of individual citizens, if you're proclaiming the right ideas and in in this context of the if you can actually convey what the declaration of independence means or what the american revolution meant of what the new form of government is why can't you persuade people that this is right um part of the problem is just in terms of thinking of voting it's a whole swath of the voters across the political spectrum have no idea what the declaration of independence means they have no idea what the constitution is uh and it's and the arguments for it so and the, these are american citizens who are like this and so the, the idea of blaming it on immigrants that that's again it's a kind of scapegoating i think what's happened in america is american citizens have lost an understanding of what america founding ideals actually mean and you cannot pin that on immigrants it's this is what happened in america it's sad, but it's the, the, the only fix to it is for Americans and everybody in America, which would include citizens and non-citizens, to learn again what those ideals are. It's not a solution to, oh, if we ban immigrants, 
then everyone all of a sudden is going to understand the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. It is not true. Yes, like you said, if these ideas are so good, which they are, the ideas of the of America's founding, why wouldn't immigrants be able to be persuaded of those ideas if they held contrary ideas? It's this perspective that immigrants are, are stupid or essentially inherently evil or something like that that doesn't uh, does not make any sense. And also, I believe that uh, when people complain about immigrants voting for the left or some people that are on the left complains that immigrants vote for the right sometimes. I mean, they are put also in an impossible situation, I think, because if you vote for the right, you know, they the right is essentially against immigration. So you're voting against what allows you to be here in the first place and become a citizen and vote. But if you vote, uh, if you vote for the left, you're voting for policies that are similar to what you already were trying to escape when in the case of immigrants from uh, from Central America. So which one do you pick? It's like uh, it's, you have to pick, I guess, the lesser of two evils, but it's a very difficult situation. And it's it's funny that it's not funny, it's sad uh, that, you know, they're the right complains about uh, immigrants voting for the left when they actually attack them constantly and in ways that are often even xenophobic. So it, it's not a, there's not a good solution to this. And there is, there's no, not a situation that would conform everyone, obviously, and it, it, there, there shouldn't be, obviously. But it's a, it's, it's, it's an impossible situation. Yeah. So, I'm um, yeah. not, not an expert of what, the voting trends in California have been so, but part of what I've read is there is a correlation between. So the Republican Party was not always anti-immigrant. Um, it's turned really anti-immigration in the last 20, 20 plus years. You could see elements in the Republican Party, but that it's come to the the to the to be dominant in the Republican Party is a relatively new phenomenon, and that you see a correlation in voting patterns in California with it going more, the Democrats getting uh, votes because the Republicans, or at least that's the correlation. And then there, there's a reason to think there's a causation there that if you're telling people, and, and particularly when you think of it as you're telling people about some of the best that's within them, like their decision to, I'm not gonna settle for being just because I was born in some country that sucks, I'm not going to settle for that life. I'm going to try to build something better, and, and if it means uprooting myself and the whole family, so I'm going to do. You're telling like, it's a, it's a a really good characteristic in the person, and if you're telling them, that's the problem with you, like this is what makes you uh, that is um, that 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 is what that one should think of that is so alienating. Um, is it is. I mean, if you take a person's virtues and you say, well, that's what's vicious about you, the person should rightly rebel against that. And even if they don't fully understand it, it's, they should feel it, that there's something like I'm being attacked for something good about myself and that you would look so, well, maybe I should side with somebody else. Um, that's part of the reason to think the correlation, there's a causality behind it. Okay, so we are... Um, we're a little bit past time, so um, why don't we close Ankara by listening to what Ayn Rand herself had to say about immigration, and then we can briefly discuss that.
You don't uh, apparently know what my position of self-interest is. I have never advocated that anyone has the right to pursue his self-interest by law or by force. If you close the borders, you for, uh, forbid immigration on grounds that it lowers your standard of living, which is definitely is not true. But even assuming it were true, you have no right to bar others. Therefore, to claim it's your self-interest is an irrational claim. You are not entitled to any self-interest which injures others and the rights of others and which you cannot prove in fact, in reality, to be valid. You cannot claim that anything that others may do, not directly to you, but simply through competition, let's say, is against your self-interest and therefore you want to stop competition there. That is the kind of self-interest you are not entitled to, which is a contradiction in terms and cannot be defended. But above all, aren't you dropping a more personal context? How could I ever advocate that immigration should be restricted when I wouldn't be alive today if it were? There's a lot there. By the way, this was uh, part of a Q&A, like the screen says, uh, from a, one of her talks, Censorship Local and Express, in 1973. Um, this is a lot of what we were uh, just discussing. And she didn't talk about immigration a whole lot. I think partly, correct me if I'm wrong, Onkar, but partly because immigration wasn't such a contentious issue back in her day. It wasn't like it is today. So I think that's partly why she didn't talk a lot about immigration specifically. But uh, anything you want to, to add to what she said or expand on what she said, Onkar? Yeah, I think it, that is partly true, that it, it's certainly not the hot button issue, as it would be put today, that immigration is, that it, when, when the news media, for instance, is talking about political candidates and people running, both on both sides, the Republican, Democrat, they'll look at what, what's their position on immigration, and it, voters care about that. So it's an issue at the forefront of politics in the way that I think, it, yeah, it was not in this way in the 60s and the 70s when Ayn Rand's writing the bulk of her political commentary. I mean, she certainly has political views and positions prior to that, but I'm thinking of the bulk of what her writing. But I also think that she thinks, and you can get some of this from the answer that she gives, she hasn't talked about immigration by name but she's talked about the principles that are relevant for thinking about immigration. And in some ways, I think she thinks the, the application of this is pretty obvious. I don't need to spell it all out for you. And that is, so it, her answer was, you don't understand my conception of self-interest. If you, the, the question was, well, can't you, in the name, if you're for self-interest, can't you keep out immigrants and can't Americans keep out immigrants? That would be in our self-interest. And her response to that is, you don't understand my conception of self-interest. And she wrote a lot about what her conception of self-interest is. And, and it's at a principled level. And part of thinking of it at a principled level is, why does a distinction between citizen and non-citizen matter for this 
for thinking about government and rights and this principle. And so if you think of it as in that context, the questioner part of what Ayn Rand is bringing up is you, you think somehow it's you have it's in your self-interest and you have a right to prohibit competition. And this is like they're stealing my jobs. But if you have that, why is it only directed at non-citizens? Why couldn't you make the same? It's, it's I'm about self-interest and Amazon is going to put me out of business. So, of course, I have a right to say there can't be Amazon and Apple with its smartphone. I work in the cell phone business, but we don't have smartphones. So it's going to put me out of business. So why can't I have that we go after Apple and prevent Apple from doing what it's doing? And so, and so if there's a right to be isolated from competition, it doesn't just apply against well competition from non-citizens or immigrants. It applies to anybody. Like, why can't you try to then just prevent any competition that you don't like? And her view is like, if that's your position, you don't have understand anything I'm saying. And the, that, and then, and thinking of why as part of inherent in individual rights is the issue of competition, that it's, you have freedom to trade, but that means the person who you're trading with, if they find, they have freedom to trade too. And if they find a better deal somewhere, they can say, no, I'm not trading with you anymore. I've got a better, if you can match this price or this offer and so on. Yeah, but if you can't, I'm going somewhere. That's part of what freedom means. It's part of what it means to pursue your self-interest. And it has to be thought of in that context. And in effect, her answer is, you're dropping all of that and ascribing to me a view of self-interest that I do not hold. And she's explained a lot about these kinds of issues. And I think for her, it's like, why would you think this applies to citizens, but not to non-citizens? Or to native born but not to immigrants like it that you're not thinking in terms of principles if you're thinking like that and and so i think that's part of it it so there's a sense in which she, yeah she didn't directly talk about immigration but she talked about all kinds of principles that are relevant to thinking about this issue yes i think that's right and Ankar, you were mentioning part of being free in a, in a free capitalistic society means, you know, dealing with competition and there, there being a lot of competition. But in general, in a free, aside from that, what do you think immigration would look like in a free society? And I clarify in a free society because we are currently in a mixed economy. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, I guess, two things. One, what would immigration look like in a free society where a government was uh, limited to its proper role? And two, in our current situation, our current mixed economy, do you think that these strict restrictions that we have on immigration make sense? So what it would look like, if we think of it, um, sort of if, if America were freer, it would be that it'd just be much, much, much more easy to come to America. So it's, it's basically, if you're coming here, to live and to work, you'd be free to do so. And it wouldn't be a two year process and applications and fees and so on. If that's what you're coming for, you'll be free to do it. And, and it, partly it's because Americans are free to trade with everybody, with other Americans and from people around the world, barring hostile countries that either were at war with or should be like Iran. But absent that, it's you can deal with people from around the world and they'd be free to come here and to work and to live and you could befriend and marry and so on. So, it, and, and it'd be around the world. So that's part of 
It's important. It's not saying, oh, okay, then the, the whole of Mexico would come. That's not what right. would happen. It would be people around the world and people who want to work and be self-reliant. And yeah, so one of the arguments we didn't deal with is, well, in the abstract or ideal of a free society, immigration, much more and freer immigration would be um, desirable, but in a mixed economy, and particularly in a welfare state, we can't have it. And I'm not sympathetic to that argument, either at the level of this is actually what's happening, that it's what what our welfare programs, like all the money is going to immigrants or something. I do not think that is true if you look at the actual the stats. And it's second, not true. yeah, in, and it, it, I think it's not close to, it's not someone can be honestly mistaken in thinking that and they're just, they haven't done the statistics right or something. So that, mm -hmm. they might say that, but that's, there's no evidence for that. And it's not what's actually driving the argument. And further to get what, what's driving the argument, I would have some sympathy if they were against welfare as such and had a really negative view of the Americans who are on welfare. But if you only have a negative view of immigrants on welfare, but not of Americans on welfare, your target is immigrants, not welfare recipients. And again, that we have all these welfare programs and so on, was not done to the country by immigrants. It's Americans set up all these programs and so on. And there is indeed a simple solution. You could just make welfare that the citizens, only citizens are eligible for it. And you could then allow immigrants and you don't have to say, oh, well, we need to restrict them because they're going to bankrupt us through the welfare system. Um, and that's, again, that's a simple, obvious solution. And if a person doesn't say, yeah, okay, that, yeah, that'd be fine. Then again, their target's not, they're worried about welfare. It's that they don't want immigrants. And here's a convenient argument they think for getting other people to agree, oh yeah, I guess we can't, in the present context, we can't have immigrants. Yeah, I think a lot of these arguments are just a way of uh, making immigrants scapegoats for uh, a lot of the problems in America and excuses for them not wanting uh, immigrants to come here. And as we discussed, I think that, uh, well, my opinion of uh, in our mixed economy, I think that we could really benefit from more open immigration. And uh, in a free society, obviously, I think a free society would look, like you said, like the best minds from all over coming here to work and advance in the society to levels that we, we have not reached yet. But we are at time, so um, I would like to point the audience to some resources that they may wanna look at to learn more about the topic today. Uh, one of them is the lexicon entry on rights, where you will find uh, Ayn Rand's, uh, some of Ayn Rand's discussion of individual rights and what they are. Uh, and also we heard about a, a clip earlier uh, of Ayn Rand talking about immigration, and that can be found in Ayn Rand Answers, a book edited by Robert Mayhew. And we also have a resource from the ARI website, which is an article called The Immigration Debate. And Harry uh, Binswanger's Ocon 22 talk called The Case for Open Borders. And I think these two resources, the Immigration Debate article and the Harry Binswanger talk, uh, should be listed, like, you should consume both of them because there are different views on, on immigration, even within 
uh, objectivism. So it's important to get uh, all of the perspectives and decide for yourself what you agree with most. Uh, thanks to everyone who submitted super chat questions and donations. And next week we have a show on, uh, on objectivism Q&A. So part of the, what we're going to be discussing there is the most powerful objections you have heard about object against objectivism. So if you have any any objections that you want to hear the answer to, please submit them to us. Uh, this will take place on March 22nd. And if you enjoy the podcast today, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and turn on notifications so you get uh, not notified when we upload new content. And if you have questions, comments, please send us an email to newideal at einrand.org. We often uh, respond to emails and we read all of them. So thank you, everyone. And thank you, Ankar, for being here today. See you next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.